Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Of the enemy. When the French came in view, the trumpets sounded the note of alarm, and the men sprang to their feet and seized their arms. Evening was drawing on when the two armies met face to face, for it was not till five o'clock that the French army drew near to Crecy. When the Genoese had formed, they advanced with a loud shout, hoping to frighten the English, who stood still and neither moved nor shouted. Then the Genoese set up a second cry and again a third, and still the same immovable silence on the part of the English was maintained. Only when they presented their crossbows and began to shoot did the English answer. Then their answer was a shower of arrows, poured with such force and quickness that it seemed as if it snowed. The Genoese threw down their arms in terror and tried to seek safety in flight. The Duke of Alençon, who was commanding the French battalion in the rear, enraged at seeing them fly, shouted to his men, Kill me, these scoundrels, for they stop up our road without any reason. The French men-at-arms pressed on through the flying Genoese, killing all who came in their way. But the shower of English arrows never ceased. With sure and steady aim, the archers penetrated into the French ranks. And now the time was come for the English knights to meet the French. Prince Edward, followed by his knights, sprang forward from behind the ranks of his archers and rushed upon Alençon and his followers. Then ensued a terrible melee. Knight struggled with knight in hand-to-hand combat. The prince's Welsh foot-soldiers made great havoc among the French with their short knives. Over all fell a ceaseless shower of arrows from the unshaken ranks of the English archers. The second battalion of the English army came to the aid of the first. The numbers of the French seemed so overwhelming that a knight was sent in great haste to the King of England, who was still posted with his reserve near the windmill on the hill. He begged the king to come to the prince's assistance. Is my son dead? asked the king, unhorsed or so badly wounded that he cannot support himself? Nay, thank God, answered the knight, but he is in so hot an engagement that he has great need of your help. The king only said, Let the boy win his spurs, for I am determined, if it please God, that all the glory and honor of this day shall be given to him and to those into whose care I have entrusted him. Truly the young prince won his spurs. He and his knights fought with such desperate valor that soon the French began to break in disorder, though not before many of their bravest knights had been slain on the field. It is said that sixteen hundred barons, four thousand squires, and twenty thousand common soldiers fell on the French side, while the English loss was inconsiderable. It was a ghastly scene upon which the moon shone down that night. On all sides the French were flying. Some knights and squires still wandered over the field amongst the dead and dying, seeking their masters, whom they had lost. They attacked the English in small parties, but were soon destroyed, for no quarter was given that day. Late in the evening, Sir John Aynaud led King Philip from the field by force. 
the king fled through the night to Amiens and then on to Paris. The English were left victors on the field. King Edward came down from his post and hastened to his son. Kissing him with enthusiasm, he said, My fair son, God Almighty give you grace to persevere as you have begun. A deep mist rose, and the battlefield was enveloped in the blackest darkness. The English only knew that their enemies had fled by the silence which had succeeded the hooting and shouting of the French. Pursuit was impossible in the darkness. They kindled great fires and lit torches, which shed a weird light on the battlefield. The battle had lasted from five o'clock on Saturday evening till two o'clock on Sunday morning. The night passed quietly, for all rioting had been forbidden. When morning dawned, Edward gave orders that the Mass of the Holy Ghost should be solemnly sung by the soldiers in thanksgiving for this great victory. The thick mist still continued. Two bodies of French soldiers who came upon the field ignorant of the battle and hoping to join the French army were entirely routed by the English and many of them were slain. Edward III remained two days upon the field of battle to superintend the numbering and burial of the dead. He granted a truce for three days that the peasantry might come and aid in the task. What think you of a battle, said Edward to his son, as they wandered over the field? Is it a pleasant game? Orders were given to attend the wounded, some of whom were given shelter by the monks of a neighboring abbey. The bodies of the dead nobles were taken to be buried in the surrounding churches, mostly in the church at Crecy. For the burial of the common soldiers, the peasants dug long, deep trenches, traces of which may be seen to this day. So was won the Battle of Crecy, the first of England's great series of victories upon the continent. It showed the powerlessness of chivalry before the strength of the people. The proudest knights of France had fallen helpless before the English yeoman with his bow and arrows. It showed that the strength of a nation no longer lay in the brilliant appearance or the boasted bravery of its knights, but in the steadfastness and sturdy courage of its people. The death knell of chivalry was sounded. Its pomp and pageantry might still continue for a while and meet with encouragement from Edward III but he was wise enough to recognize the truth and know that it was to his archers and not to his knights that he owed this victory. Crecy was not only a triumph of the English over the French, it was a triumph of the people over the nobles. End of section 3after the battle of crecy the road to calais lay open to edward the third it was of the utmost importance to him to gain possession of this town its port was the home of the french pirates who so fatally damaged his commerce if he could but gain possession of it they would be destroyed and he would gain a new and convenient harbour for his trade with flanders to take Calais by assault was hopeless on account of its strong fortifications. Edward determined to besiege it and reduce the town by starvation. He caused to be built round its walls a whole town of wooden houses in which he lodged his army. This wooden town was laid out in streets, and the houses were thatched with straw. There was even a marketplace where markets were held on Wednesdays and Saturdays. English and Flemish merchants brought cloth, bread and meat, and supplies of all kinds for the comfort of the army. Communications were opened with England, and money was asked for and obtained from Parliament. English ships blockaded the harbour and were stationed all along the coast so as to cut off all approach to the unfortunate city. Reinforcements came over from England. Queen Philippa joined her husband in the camp. The English waited patiently in confidence of success. The English arms were successful on all sides. The French withdrew from the Garonne and left the English in undisputed possession of Guienne and Poitou. But in England itself a great danger had arisen. The Scots were always ready and eager to cross the border. 
now that they knew that the king of england was away in france with all his bravest soldiers they thought there would be no one to resist them and that they would be able to march unopposed to the gates of london itself a large army under david bruce crossed the border and proceeded as far as durham burning and destroying everything in their way but the archbishop of york and the lords henry percy and ralph neville had gathered together all the men they could find amongst whom were even many clergymen eager to fight in defence of their country they came upon the scots unaware at neville's cross near durham the english fought valiantly wishing to emulate their victorious countrymen at crecy here again the english archers decided the day the scots were completely routed david bruce the great earl douglas and many other nobles were taken prisoners while still more lay lifeless on the field david bruce was taken to london which he entered solemnly riding upon a horse amidst a great concourse of spectators who received him with silent respect he was led to the tower where he was destined to remain a long while in brittany also the english arms had been successful charles of blois de montfort's rival had been taken prisoner and was sent to the tower the king of france was determined at least to save calais messengers were sent to him by john of vienne the governor of calais saying that he could not hold out much longer seventeen hundred of the useless inhabitants of the town had already been turned out and had been kindly received by the english who gave them food and suffered them to pass on the garrison had eaten all the dogs and cats in the town starvation was staring them in the face they must surrender if help did not come philip assembled an army at whitsuntide and marched to raise the siege of the suffering city but when he drew near he found that it was impossible to approach the english army which was securely entrenched he sent messengers to edward asking him to come out and give him battle in the open field but afraid to risk another battle after the defeat of crecy he determined to leave the city to its fate and broke up his camp the unfortunate garrison saw the army which they had hoped would save them turn its back without striking a blow further resistance was hopeless and the famished garrison asked for terms edward would grant none he was enraged with the city on account of its obstinacy and hated its citizens because of the many deeds of piracy by which they had injured his commerce he sent sir walter manny to the governor saying that he would grant mercy to the garrison and the inhabitants if six of the principal burghers gave themselves unconditionally into his hands with ropes round their necks and the keys of the town in their hands when the governor had heard the king's answer from sir walter manny he went into the market-place and caused the bell to be rung when all the inhabitants of the town had assembled he told them what the king of england had said then there was great weeping and lamentation till up rose the wealthiest citizen of the town eustas de st pierre and said it would be a very great pity to suffer so many people to die through famine i will be the first of the six then the citizens seemed as though they would have worshipped him falling at his feet with tears and groans it was not long before others were found willing to die for their fellow-citizens they were followed to the gates by lamentations and sir walter manny led them to the king's pavilion there they fell upon their knees before edward and presenting him with the keys begged him to have mercy upon them so pitiful was the sight that the english barons and knights who stood around wept to behold it edward only eyed them angrily for he hated the citizens of calais then spoke sir walter manny ah gentle king restrain your anger let not the world have cause to speak ill of you for your cruelty but edward refused to listen queen philippa threw herself on her knees before him and said with tears ah gentle sir since i have crossed the seas with great danger to see you i have never asked you one favour now i most humbly ask as a gift for the sake of the son of the blessed mary and for your love to me that you will be merciful to these men 
the king after looking at her in silence for some time said ah lady i wish you had been elsewhere but i cannot refuse you i give them to you to do as you please then the queen and all the knights were very joyful and philippa took the noble citizens to her tent and gave them new clothing and feasted them and giving them each six nobles of gold sent them out of the camp in safety it was on the fourth august thirteen forty seven that calais fell into the hands of the english edward caused all its inhabitants to leave it except some few who made their peace by swearing fealty to him to repeople the town he offered great privileges to such english merchants as would settle there soon it became again a bustling busy commercial city and was of great importance to the trade of england during the two hundred and eleven years that it remained in her possession edward stayed some little while at calais during which time prince edward led frequent foraging expeditions into france pope clement the sixth had been unceasing in his attempts to make peace between the kings of france and england now once more his legates appeared upon the scene and at last succeeded in negotiating a truce which was agreed upon on the twenty eighth of september and was to last till a fortnight after the next midsummer day on the twelfth of october the king and his son landed at sandwich this time he did not return without having done something decisive between the tenth july thirteen forty six and the fourth august thirteen forty seven the great battles of crecy and neville's cross had been won and calais had been taken the tower was crowded with noble prisoners the whole country was enriched by the spoil won from the french all this showed the power of the english people the ability of their king and the bravery of his son it was a proud moment for england when her king and his son came home crowned with the laurels of victory after this edward stayed almost constantly in england and devoted himself to domestic legislation as he had entire confidence in the ability of his son to conduct foreign campaigns it is supposed that prince edward gained the name of the black prince from the french after the battle of crecy when he fought in a black cuirass some time after the siege of calais edward the third left england once again to indulge in an adventure which was more befitting a knight-errant than a king he heard that geoffrey de charny a french knight had been trying to bribe the genoese commander whom he had left in charge of calais edward gave orders that the negotiations should be continued and arrangements made to admit a body of french soldiers under geoffrey de charny at the great gate of calais leading to boulogne he then crossed the seas with his son sir walter manny and a picked body of knights the king and his son were to fight disguised under the banner of sir walter manny at the hour appointed the great gates were opened and the french were preparing to enter when the english sprang from their ambuscade and with shouts of money to the rescue fell upon the french sir geoffrey saw that he had been betrayed but turning to his men he said gentlemen if we fly we shall lose all let us fight valiantly in the hope that the day may be ours then there were many stout passages of arms between the english and the french the king of england singled out the bravest knight among the french sir eustace de ribaumont who had no idea with whom he fought and twice struck edward down on his knees at last he was obliged to surrender himself to the king and the honour of the day belonged to the english all the french were either slain or captured only after the fight did the french know that the king of england had been there in person it was the evening of the new year and edward determined to celebrate the night with a great feast to which the french prisoners were bidden all were seated round the table with the king dressed in new robes all english and french alike made good cheer prince edward and the english knights served up the first course and waited on their guests then seated themselves quietly at another table after supper the tables were removed and the king remained in the hall talking with the knights to sir eustace de ribaumont he said smiling sir eustace you are the most valiant knight in christendom that i ever saw attack his enemy or defend himself i never yet found any one in battle who hand to hand gave me so much to do as you have done this day i adjudge to you as your just due 
the prize of valour above all the knights of my court the king then took off a chaplet of pearls very rich and handsome which he wore round his head and placed it upon the head of sir Eustas, bidding him wear it for love of him he also gave him his liberty without ransom allowing him to go on the morrow wherever he would End of section four the victories in france had brought great wealth and prosperity into england the booty won from france was spread throughout the land and the matrons of england clothed themselves in the garments of the matrons of france the result was not altogether beneficial this increased wealth brought with it also a change in the simplicity of english manners wearing the more extravagant dress of the french sleeping on their feather beds clothing themselves in their rich furs the people's taste grew more extravagant they acquired a love for fine clothes for foolish fashions and foppery of all kinds and in this extravagance the clergy rivalled the laity there was also an increased love of pageantry and dissipation in which the people were encouraged by the king tournaments were so frequent that edward had to pass an enactment forbidding them to be held without royal permission yet he himself caused nineteen to be held between october thirteen forty seven and may thirteen forty eight many of which lasted more than a fortnight the life of the court and the nobles was nothing but a ceaseless round of gaieties and festivities it was at one of these tournaments that edward the third established the great order of the garter which continues to this day and may be looked upon as a heritage left to us by the chivalric spirit of the middle ages chivalry was a thing of french creation and throve naturally on french soil it is principally the french and provencal troubadours who have celebrated it by their song in england it never developed so freely it seemed like a thing imported foreign in its very nature to english simplicity and english bluntness still throughout the middle ages the chivalric spirit ruled supreme all over europe in england and france alike when chivalry ceased to be an enthusiasm it became a fashion and lingered on as a fashion till cervantes heaped ridicule upon it in his don quixote till its absurdities became so manifest that it faded away amid the scorn and laughter of mankind edward the third aimed at being a type of fashionable knighthood in his day chivalry had not yet become an absurdity it had lost much of its early simplicity and elevation but still in the black prince and some of his knights such as sir john chandos sir walter manny and sir james audley we find all the nobleness of early chivalry let us look a little closer at this chivalry and see what it meant and what was the ideal which it held up to its followers it had no artificial origin but sprang up as a natural outcome of feudalism and so of early teutonic manners a feudal vassal owed certain definite duties to his superior knighthood was the formal act by which the fitness of a young man to take upon him these duties was recognized and he was declared worthy to enter the rank of warriors it was to the crusades that chivalry owed its religious character by taking part in the crusades the knight could best find a field in which he might give free play to all the noble sentiments which animated him and if the knight was to fight for christ it was right that religion should take under her control the important act which initiated a young man into the rank of knighthood the education of a future knight began at the age of seven it was the custom for the sons of gentlemen to be brought up in the castles of the nobles where first they acted as pages attending upon the lords and ladies afterwards they were advanced at the age of fourteen to the rank of squires and waited upon their lords both at home and abroad they aided in their toilet carved before them at table and riveted their armour as they attended them to the tournament or the battle attention was paid to their education in all things connected with the management of arms or of horses they were taught above all to be courteous to ladies to be respectful and obedient to their superiors thus bred up in the atmosphere of chivalry they were fit and eager when manhood came 
to be raised to the dignity of knighthood this was accompanied by many solemn ceremonies the squire who was to be knighted was first made to lay aside his clothes and enter a bath the symbol of purification on coming out he was clothed with a white garment the symbol of purity next in a red robe the symbol of the blood he was bound to shed in the service of the faith and lastly in a close black coat the symbol of the death which awaited him he then spent the next twenty-four hours in fasting at evening he entered the church or chapel and passed the night in prayers in the morning he confessed and received absolution and then partook of the communion he was next present at the mass of the holy ghost and sometimes listened to a sermon on the duties of knighthood then advancing to the altar with the sword of a knight hanging from his neck he knelt before the priest who took the sword and blessed it and then returned it to him after this he went and knelt before the noble who was to arm him knight who was called his godfather before him he swore to maintain the right to fight for the faith to serve his sovereign prince to protect the weak and oppressed above all to be the champion of women to obey his superiors to honour his companions to keep faith with all the world to forswear all treason and avarice to acknowledge as his only aims glory and virtue when he had taken his oath knights and ladies advanced to clothe him in his new armour the spurs the coat of mail the cuirass and the gauntlets and to gird on his sword then his godfather struck him three blows with the flat of his sword saying in the name of god of st michael and of st george i dub thee knight the young knight then seized his helmet and sprang upon his horse brandishing his lance and rode out to show himself to the crowd outside the church there was always great feasting and joy when the eldest son was knighted his father gathered round him all his vassals who owed him a money contribution on this joyous occasion they feasted together in the great hall of the castle the lord himself was seated at the high table on the dais at one end of the hall but with his face turned toward the hall that all might see him during the feast the guests were entertained with the performances of jesters tumblers and jugglers who formed part of all the great households of that time or they listened to the romances of the troubadours so amidst general rejoicings the young man entered on his new career the ideal of perfect knighthood held before him was noble and exalted and we cannot doubt that it fired him with enthusiasm and inspired him to do noble deeds in an age of rough and rude manners when the majority of men were wanting in all refinement and culture when men for the most part were animated only by low and selfish aims when the light shed around by religion was as yet only feeble and fitful it was a great thing to have such an ideal as this held up before men in the crusades the knight found his true field by them the use of the sword was sanctified and the warrior could find joy in feats of arms whilst fighting for christ and as the crusades sanctified the warlike feats of the knight his worship of the virgin sanctified that devotion to the ladies which was so distinguishing a feature of chivalry god and the ladies was the motto of every true knight he went both to tournament and to battle with his lady's badge upon his arm and thoughts of her nerved him to deeds of valour his honour was the dearest thing in a knight's eyes and from this sprang his scrupulous fidelity to his word once pledged as a lover he must be faithful to the lady he served as a vassal he must be faithful to his lord a promise once given even to an enemy must never be broken during the french wars of edward the third we hear often of knights being released on their word to raise the money required for their ransom and returning of their own accord to captivity if they could not raise this money courtesy was another distinguishing feature of chivalry by this was meant true courtesy springing from the heart and showing itself in modesty consideration for others self-denial as well as in matters of outward gesture and punctilio courtesy was shown as much to foe as to friend and did much toward softening the ferocity of war a true knight must also be liberal he must be inspired with an active sense of justice and a burning indignation of wrong but whilst extending the sympathy of a knight to all his companions in knighthood whether friend or foe 
chivalry narrowed his sympathy to those of his own class princes did their utmost to encourage chivalry to provide tournaments where their knights might exhibit their valour and to cover them with every possible distinction but while caring for the knights they forgot the people the spirit of chivalry was a class spirit and narrowing in its tendency it recognised neither the rights nor the interests of the people and when once the people had grown strong enough to assert their rights and make their importance felt the doom of chivalry was sealed it continued to exist with all its pageantry long after its real life and spirit was dead perhaps it was never so magnificent in its outward show as it was during the reign of edward the third when its decay had already begun never had there been so many and such splendid tournaments at the english court as now after the battle of crecy it is uncertain at which of these edward founded the order of the garter but it is known to have been in existence in thirteen forty eight most probably it was founded at the great tournament held at eltham in thirteen forty seven ever since thirteen forty four when edward had made a round table at windsor in imitation of the traditionary round table of king arthur he had been desirous of establishing a new order of knighthood this desire was ripened into fulfilment by the prosperous condition of the country after the battle of crecy a trivial incident decided the motto and badge which he should adopt for the new order one of the ladies of the court by some supposed to be queen philippa herself by others the countess of salisbury dropped her garter whilst the courtiers looked at one another and smiled shrugging their shoulders as they pointed to the garter on the floor edward with the gallantry of a true knight picked it up and handing it to the lady said on y soit qui mal y pense shame to him who thinks evil as he did so the thought flashed through his mind that here was the badge and the motto for his new order the order was established with great pomp and ceremony st george was instituted as its patron saint a chapel to st george was ordered to be built at windsor as chapel for the order there each of the twenty-five knights who were to be honoured with the garter was to have his appointed stall over which during his lifetime his helmet and sword were to hang there all the knights were to assemble if it were in any way possible on the eve of st george's day then sitting each in his stall they were to hear mass on st george's day a great tournament and banquet was to be held on the day following a requiem was to be sung for the souls of the faithful deceased no knight of the order was ever to pass near windsor without coming to the chapel and there was to put on his mantle and hear mass edward made a foundation at the chapel of thirteen secular canons and thirteen vicars and also of twenty-six veteran knights who were to be maintained there and were to serve god continually in prayer the kings of england were to be perpetual sovereigns of the order there were twenty-five knights founders amongst whom was of course the black prince with his principal knights chandos sir james audley and the captal de bouche they were nearly all young men four of them were even under twenty and ten under thirty edward the third himself was only thirty-five at the first feast we read that all these founders together with the king were clothed in gowns of russet powdered with blue garters wearing like garters also on their right legs and mantles of blue with the scutcheons of st george bareheaded and in this apparel they heard mass which was celebrated by simon islip archbishop of canterbury and afterwards went to the feast setting themselves orderly at the table then followed splendid tournaments at which there were two kinds of conflicts in the tournaments proper the knights divided themselves into parties and one party fought against another there were also jousts or conflicts between two knights these were generally held in honour of the ladies who presided as judges over them the combatants used spears without heads of iron their object was to strike their opponent upon the front of his helmet so as to beat him backwards upon his horse or else to break his spear though the tournaments were only looked upon as sport they were often intended with great danger and the knights engaged in the combat were not seldom severely wounded and even killed but no thought of this danger incurred without good reason diminished in the least the enthusiasm for them 
they were attended with every possible kind of magnificence the lists within which the combatants were to fight were superbly decorated and were surrounded by pavilions belonging to the champions and ornamented with their arms and banners scaffolds were erected for the noble spectators both lords and ladies those upon which the royal family sat were hung with tapestry and embroideries of gold and silver every spectator was decked in the most sumptuous manner not only the knights themselves but their horses their pages and the heralds were clothed in costly and glittering apparel the clanging of trumpets the shouts of the beholders the cries of the heralds increased the excitement of the fray when the tournament was over the combatants retired to their pavilions to refresh themselves after the fight and remove their heavy armour the weight of which was almost unbearable in the evening they met together with the nobles and ladies who had been spectators of the sport and the time was passed in feasting dancing and singing the heralds named those who had fought best on both sides the ladies chose a name for each party and the champions received the rewards of their merit from the hands of two young and noble maidens End of section five children were taught from their earliest childhood to relish these spectacles their very toys were made in imitation of knights jousting the number of these tournaments led to very great extravagance in dress each person wished to excel his neighbour in the magnificence of his attire the great desire was to appear in something new and astounding and this led to the most fantastic fashions ladies of the first rank and greatest beauty might be seen on these occasions dressed in party-coloured tunics half one colour and half another with handsomely ornamented girdles of gold and silver in which were stuck short swords or daggers in this masculine attire they appeared mounted on the finest horses they could procure ornamented with the richest furniture party-coloured garments were in great favour men would wear one stocking of one colour the other of another most noticeable among the many extravagant fashions were the trailing dresses which lay in heaps upon the ground in front as well as behind the long and fantastically shaped sleeves trailed also on the ground a contemporary writer says that tailors must soon shape their garments in the open field for want of room to cut them in their own houses because that man is best respected who bears upon his back at one time the greatest quantity of cloth and of fur edward the third himself set the example in these extravagant fashions in his wardrobe rolls we find accounts of dresses which were to be worn at tournaments one was a tunic and a cloak with a hood on which were to be embroidered one hundred garters with buckles bars and pendants of silver also a doublet of linen having round the skirts and about the sleeves a deep border of green cloth worked with representations of clouds with vine branches of gold and this motto given by the king it is as it is the festival of the garter was celebrated with great splendour in thirteen fifty one the king wore a robe of cloth of gold furred another of red velvet embroidered with clouds and eagles of pearl and gold each eagle having in his beak a garter with the motto of the order the queen wore a similar robe and the princess isabel wore a red velvet robe embroidered with one hundred and nineteen circles of silk and pearls with trees of silk and gold embroidered on a ground of green velvet with flowers and leaves on another occasion we read that a grant of two hundred pounds equal to three thousand pounds of our money was made to queen philippa for her attire at the festival of the garter these gorgeous robes were of course exceedingly valuable and were reckoned amongst the most important possessions of the great people the black prince disposed by will of the chief of his robes describing them each separately another way in which the royal family and the nobility displayed their grandeur was by their magnificent bed hangings of these again the black prince disposed by will he seems to have possessed many different beds with gorgeous hangings one set of hangings was embroidered with mermaids another with swans and so on 
gold and silver plate was another favourite article of luxury the city of london made several very handsome presents of large quantities of plate both to the king and to the prince but amidst all this apparent luxury we must not forget the other side of the picture the squalor and discomfort in which even the greatest people lived in those days glazed windows were only just beginning to be used the walls of the rooms were commonly bare and only on grand occasions were covered with hangings the black prince we know possessed some splendid hangings one set was embroidered with swans having ladies heads and another was embroidered with eagles and griffins these he used to carry about with him to ornament his hall on great occasions the floors were covered with rushes and were the receptacle of all kinds of filth bones were thrown at dinner on the floor for the dogs who were beneath the table ready to devour them forks were not known and the food was mostly torn in pieces with the fingers wooden platters were largely in use or more often a large slice of bread on which each man would lay his portion of meat at banquets a lady and a knight used to eat off the same plate there were only two meals in the course of the day dinner which took place between ten and eleven and supper at five o'clock the entire household dined together in the great hall the chief ornament of the dinner-table was a massive salt-cellar and the places for the persons of the greatest dignity were always above the salt edward the third possessed among his royal jewels a silver ship which was used to ornament the dinner-table and hold sweetmeats gold and silver ewers were used for washing before and after meat the great hall or dining-room was also the sleeping-room for the servants there were private sleeping-rooms for the chief members of the family each great nobleman had around him a number of officers like a royal court chamberlains chancellors and others besides these he kept in his employ companies of minstrels jugglers and tumblers and players who sang and displayed their tricks for the amusement of the company during their meals travelling companies of minstrels and jugglers wandered over the country giving performances in the various noblemen's houses tregators or conjurers were in high favour there were both male and female tumblers who went about together in companies called gleeman's companies they also amused their audiences with buffoonery of all kinds other men made it their profession to train bears apes and horses to perform tricks the spectators always connected these tricks with witchcraft and supposed them to be done by means of magic theatres did not exist in those days but there were mysteries or miracle plays which formed a great part of the amusement of the people during the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries their origin was no doubt purely religious and their object was to illustrate passages of scripture and teach moral lessons they were performed in churches or on stages erected in the churchyards and the fields and sometimes on movable stages in the streets they were written by monks and were performed sometimes by monks themselves sometimes by members of a trade guild they seem very soon to have lost most of their religious character and to have become little more than a means of amusement for the people to secure this better they degenerated into rather coarse comedies three complete sets of these old mysteries still exist and in all we see the same desire for comic effect which led the authors to take liberties with the text of scripture so as to be able to introduce comic incidents noah's wife is a favourite character and is endowed with a very obstinate temper so that noah has great difficulty in getting her into the ark devils played an important part and were represented with horns tails claws and terrible masks everything possible was done to make them awful in the eyes of the children and women masks were much used in the performances the women's parts were acted by men or boys wearing masks the plays as a whole cannot have produced any very serious impression though they were by no means entirely deficient in religious feeling but the comic element predominated and gave rise to the most boisterous merriment we cannot wonder therefore that the preachers and moralists of the day regarded the miracle plays with disfavour and spoke of them in the same way as the puritans of later date did of the theatres 
these mysteries were exhibited on festivals and holidays another kind of play called ludi were exhibited at court during the christmas holidays these plays were really nothing more than mummeries the appearance of a large number of persons in masks and various comic dresses personifying certain characters and performing dances in thirteen forty eight edward the third kept his christmas at guildford orders were given to manufacture for the christmas sports eighty tunics of buckram of different colours and a large number of masks some with faces of women some with beards some like angel heads of silver there were to be mantles embroidered with heads of dragons tunics wrought with heads and wings of peacocks and embroidered in many other fantastic ways the celebration of christmas lasted from all hallows eve the thirty-first of october till the day after the purification the third february at the court a lord of misrule was appointed who reigned during the whole of this period and was called the master of merry disports he ruled over and organized all the games and sports and during the period of his rule there was nothing but a succession of masks disguisings and dances of all kinds all the nobles even the mayor of london had an officer of this kind chosen in their households dancing was a very favourite amusement it was practised by the nobility of both sexes the damsels of london spent their evenings in dancing before their masters doors and the country lasses danced upon the village green the favourite occupation of the nobility was hunting in the reign of edward the second hunting had been reduced to a science and rules had been established for its practice edward the third was an ardent hunter and all the nobility followed his example even bishops and abbots hunted no more valuable present could be made than a hare-hound or deer-hound in hawking ladies could also take part the careful training of a falcon required great skill and a well-trained bird was most highly prized embroidered gloves were worn on the hand upon which the falcon was to sit when not flying at their game the hawks used to be hoodwinked with elegant hoods they had a bell on each leg and there was a difference of a semitone between the two bells the english ladies led a quiet and secluded life and were celebrated for their skill in needlework and embroidery they used also to amuse themselves with playing at dice and chess and with music they were allowed it is true to appear as spectators at the tournaments and at the time of the foundation of the order of the garter the queen and the wives of the knight founders were received as far as their sex allowed as members of the order End of section six the famous order of the garter had been established men were feasting and carousing and were spending their days in brilliant festivals while the shadow of a great calamity was creeping over the land a terrible plague had broken out in the interior of asia it spread rapidly to europe devastating greece and italy and passed on through france to england its coming is said to have been heralded by the most frightful signs a stinking mist seemed to advance from the east and spread over europe numerous earthquakes shook the continent and meteors of great size were seen it was in august thirteen forty eight that the plague first reached the shores of england three months afterwards it reached london we can hardly imagine the terror which the plague must have spread over the country no one could feel himself safe from its ravages before the plague the population of england is supposed to have been five million it is calculated that at least two million five hundred thousand persons perished of it the disease seemed to be a poisoning of the blood it began with shivering which was followed by a burning internal fever and then boils of a black colour appeared upon the skin whence it gained its name the black death death often ensued after a few hours illness the terror of death only increased the danger and gave rise to utter selfishness and recklessness men deserted those dearest to them when they were stricken by the plague brothers deserted their sisters husbands their wives mothers their children some shut themselves up in utter solitude and hoped by living moderately and avoiding all contact with men to escape the danger 
others indulged in the wildest dissipation and strove to drown their anxiety by reckless drinking and excitement of all kinds the mere sight of a stricken person was supposed to be sufficient to communicate infection no one ventured to walk abroad without bearing in their hands some pungent herb the smell of which was believed to disinfect the pestilential air the rich shut themselves up in their castles and in many cases succeeded in escaping infection it was amongst the poor that the mortality was greatest from the large number of parish priests who are known to have died of the plague we are led to hope that they at least did not shun the danger but went boldly amongst the sick and dying to administer the last comforts of religion we know that seventeen out of twenty-one of the york clergy died during the pestilence it was in the eastern counties that the mortality was the greatest they were at that time the most thickly populated part of england for many years there had been a slow and constant immigration of flemings who had been encouraged by the english kings to settle in england that they might there establish their industries from them the english had learnt weaving and commercial enterprise the east not the west of england was then the centre of manufactures and industry norwich was a thriving manufacturing city possessing sixty parish churches and sixteen chapels there exists a record stating that fifty seven thousand three hundred and seventy four persons died there of the plague norwich never recovered its prosperity at the present day it has only thirty six parish churches in place of sixty before thirteen forty eight yarmouth was of great importance as a station for the herring industry out of ten thousand inhabitants it lost seven thousand by the plague in bristol then one of the chief towns in england the plague raged to such an extent that the living were scarcely able to bury the dead and grass grew several inches high in the principal streets in london its ravages were terrible the churchyards were filled to overflowing and no longer sufficed sir walter manny bought a piece of land in west smithfield to bury the dead and built a chapel where masses should be said for the souls of the departed this was the origin of the charter house other persons also bought pieces of land for the same purpose and fields were set apart where the dead were buried in large pits two successive archbishops of canterbury died of the plague john de ufford and thomas bradwardine one of the most learned men of his time one of the king's daughters the princess joan died of it at bordeaux on her way to marry don pedro of castile by many people the black death was looked upon as a scourge sent from god for the sins of mankind a sect of fanatics called the flagellants arose and wandered over all parts of europe there appeared in london in thirteen forty nine a band of men and women one hundred and twenty in number whose object was to expiate in their own persons the sins of the world they wandered from town to town clad in sackcloth with red crosses on their caps chanting penitential hymns from time to time they prostrated themselves upon the ground in the form of a cross and took it in turns for one of their number to scourge their naked backs and shoulders this process was repeated every morning for thirty-three days the number of the years of christ's life upon earth then the fanatics having fulfilled the appointed penance returned to their own homes having in many cases inspired others to follow their example so great was their enthusiasm that they seemed not to feel the stroke of the scourge and sang their wild hymns only with greater exultation as the blood streamed from their shoulders the following is a translation of a verse of one of their hymns through love of man the saviour came through love of man he died he suffered want reproach and shame was scourged and crucified o oh, think then on thy saviour's pain and lash the sinner lash again in england they found no response to their enthusiasm the people only gazed and wondered and they departed without having gained any followers in germany their success was much greater the result of the black death in england was a social revolution which changed the whole course of english history it disturbed the existing relations of land and labour by increasing suddenly the value of labour 
whilst it diminished the value of land we cannot follow in detail the course of this revolution but we can trace some of the causes which produced it so large a number of labourers had died of the plague that there were none left to till the land flocks and herds wandered over the country with no one to tend them the labourers being few in number demanded wages which the farmers were not able to pay and make a profit land consequently fell in value and it became possible for one man to hold a large quantity of it the small farms were broken up as it was easier for a small farmer to gain his livelihood by working for another man than by attempting to get others to work for him and make a profit out of his own land arable land was largely converted into pasture land because pasture land required fewer labourers the immediate consequence of the plague was the outbreak of the first great conflict in the history of england between capital and labour the free labourer at that time can hardly be said to have had a position recognised by law according to the system of land tenure which had prevailed in england since early times the serf was bound to the land he was not a slave in the sense that he could be bought or sold but he was his lord's property for he could not move from the soil on which he had been born he was an outlaw if he attempted to leave it without his lord's permission as time went on the serf had gained certain rights the amount of service due by him to his lord had been limited by custom he had a legal right to the piece of land on which his hut was built the labour which he owed to his lord was as it were the rent he paid for his land in the twelfth century the custom began to be common for the lord who was frequently for long periods absent on the crusades or at war to lease some of his land to tenants instead of farming it all through bailiffs this was found to be both easier and more profitable and thus arose the farmer class a still greater change was the gradual rise of the free labourer the church had long used its influence to urge men to give freedom to their serfs it was possible also for a serf to gain freedom by living a year and a day within the walls of a chartered town the tenants as they increased in wealth and social importance found the labour rent more and more burdensome on the other hand the lords owing to the increasing luxury of the time and to the expenses of chivalry and war were continually in want of money it became therefore the custom for the serfs to buy their freedom from their lords edward the third himself used to raise money by selling manumissions to his serfs in time the labourer became detached from the soil and could pass from one farm to another the scarcity of labour after the black death made the landowners feel how disadvantageous this system was to them formerly they could compel their serfs to work now they had to pay the labourers the wages which they asked or allow their land to remain untilled and the harvests to rot upon the fields government was of course in those days entirely in the interests of the landlords to remedy the evil of high wages the king assembled his council on the fourteenth june thirteen forty nine the country was not yet sufficiently recovered from the plague to allow of parliament being summoned the council issued a royal ordinance which was afterwards embodied in the statute of labourers the preamble of this statute gives us in a few words a vivid picture of the times it states that a great part of the people and especially of workmen and servants late died of the pestilence many seeing the necessity of masters and the great scarcity of servants will not serve unless they may receive excessive wages and some are rather willing to beg in idleness than by labour to get their living it then proceeds to ordain that all men and women who do not live by merchandise or by the exercise of any craft are to work for the same wages as they had received before the plague they were to work first for their own lord though he was not to retain more than he wanted the statute went on to say that seeing that many sturdy beggars as long as they can live by begging and charity refuse to labour no one under pain of imprisonment shall presume to nourish them in their idleness thus the law ordered that all men were to work giving alms to beggars was forbidden the scale of wages was fixed and men were once more bound at least in the first place to work for their lord the fixing of the scale of wages by law could have no permanent effect 
with the high price of provisions which had resulted from the black death it was impossible for men to live on the same wages as before the plague we see by the repeated reinforcements of the statute during the reign of edward the third how unsuccessful it was in obtaining the desired result still more galling to the labourer was the attempt made by this statute to bind him once more to the soil and thus to rob him of his newly acquired freedom we cannot wonder that the statute of labourers produced a growing discontent amongst the labour class which at last broke out in the peasants revolt under richard the second the horrors of the black death had rudely disturbed the joy and prosperity of the english people no greater contrast can be imagined than that between the condition of england in thirteen forty seven when the people revelled in the enjoyment of peace and of a luxury unknown before and england in the beginning of thirteen fifty more than half the people had died of the plague even amongst the cattle the mortality had been very great the looms stood silent for want of weavers the harvests lay rotting on the fields for want of labourers sheep and oxen wandered half wild over the country because there was no one to tend them the country pulpits remained silent the people as well as their sheep were without shepherds all suits and pleadings in the king's bench and all sessions of parliament ceased for two 